0: Well, thank you for um, leading us in worship, Nathan, and thank you for giving us songs that we need to hear during uh, this time. And in one sense, I uh, am very tempted to not talk about the elephant in the room, which is the coronavirus, and in another sense... It's almost irresponsible, pastorally, not to talk about something that's affecting uh, all of us and so many of us in different ways. But I do want to, before I get into the text this morning, to remind you, once again, we're in this sort of off-routine, different time of life. I want to remind all of you that uh, we do have a second service this evening it's worshiping the round, and uh, we're worshiping from our homes, but we're worshiping in heart together. And Pastor Pete Johnson is going to be bringing the word this evening. We're going to broadcast it from the Student Ministries, ministries room upstairs. And it should be a a warm, intimate time. And he'll come out of John 14. It'll be an hour of singing and worship. And that's it, five to six. So bring your kids around the table, um, around the TV, around whatever screen, and we'll worship together for that. But I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be finishing up this great chapter. And it is a great text. And the timing of this text could not be any more perfect. Uh, for what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. We're talking about um, this world versus a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I could not have uh, thought this up in terms of calendaring what I'm gonna be preaching, when and why, except for the Lord's leadership uh, overriding me and uh, putting us right where we need to be. So Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're gonna be looking. And again, the, the pandemic is ever before us. I want to just sort of set the stage for what we're thinking about. I was looking at the statistics this morning. In our country, there's 300,000, 311,656 uh, who have it. At least that was what I looked at at about 6 a.m. this morning. And then 8,454 deaths in our country alone. That's sad, and those statistics are real. 1.2 million have the coronavirus in our world. Uh, We don't really know what to do with these statistics, though, and depending on how you think about them and interpret them, that builds a kind of feeling in your heart in terms of how you think things are going. Some of you would just say, well, these are statistics just like any other statistic, like car deaths, automobile accidents, accidents abortion, uh, uh, other flu epidemics or, or things that are happening that take people's lives. And all of that is true. All of that is real. But at the same time, a big thing that's happening in our world does affect our mood. It does affect and impact the way that we think. Perhaps you are living in fear. Perhaps you are uh, losing it a little bit, becoming stir crazy because you're hunkered down in your home in a way that you aren't used to that affects our spiritual lives. Perhaps you're someone who's more vulnerable to sickness. Perhaps you are sick right now with the virus or sick in another way, or perhaps you need medical care that you don't feel like you can get to right now because you're struggling as to whether you should even go to the hospital. There's a lot that's going on spiritually in our minds and in our hearts. And God has our attention for sure, or he should Maybe you're praying for someone who's sick. Maybe you're concerned for someone and you want to reach out to them and you don't know how. It would be sort of naive to think that these dynamics aren't affecting us. Maybe you're tempted to doubt your spiritual safety. Your spiritual security maybe you 're thinking about heaven and hell in a different way in a new way that you 've never thought before, where death is ever fresh in your minds. I think of how the secular environment lives generally lives this facade, this picture of security and safety and wealth and interpersonal dynamics and glitz and glamour and show and restaurants and and all the the plush. Things that you could have in life and yet all of that right now is just disintegrated away. And then we really see the nub of reality that we're just here for a short time. Life is very fragile. Our kingdom, our world is very shakable compared to an unshakable kingdom which is founded in God. That's what our text leads us to think through. I mean, we've never in our history had statistics and data like we do now, right? We we don't even need to turn the TV on or in the old days, the olden days, wait for the TV to warm up. Who remembers that? I see that hand. No, I really don't. All right. So all that to say, now you just call out to Siri or call out to your wrist or look at your hand and you can find out at least what that communicates to us, statistics, We are flooded with opinions. Do we wear a mask now? Do we not wear a mask? To mask or not to mask, that is the question. Some of you are yelling back advice and opinions as to what we should do regarding that because questions are flying around in our minds. But the biggest question is how long will this last? Will we ever go back to normal? What will the new normal look like? Are people going to die? Are more people going to die? What's going to happen in New York City That's heavy on all of our hearts as we're watching that. What's going to happen to our immediate area with hospitals and ventilators? What's going to happen to Italy? What's going to happen in China? What's really happening there? Will our economy come into full swing again? This week, I was watching... Probably the same news report you were watching where uh, the president and generals and others were talking about sending battle cruisers down into the Caribbean area and under Florida to safeguard our country from the cartel and drugs coming in, illegal drugs coming into our country. It's begging the vulnerability of our nation right now where everybody's focused on the virus, but we also need to be focused on protection. There's been action in the Middle East, an attack on a military base in the Middle East, and the president is saying, hey, we'll attack back. All of these dynamics speak to the fragility of our world. Wars and rumors of wars are predicted to give us a sense of the now and then the future where God is coming back. These dynamics are foreshadowings of the day of the Lord, right? whether it's a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake like we had not too long ago where we had a 7.1, 7.2 earthquake. We have things that shake us up in our world to catch our attention. So from the text this morning, do we have any answers to why our world is acting in the way that it's acting right now? Why are things Seeming to fall apart around us. And what is God doing through something like the coronavirus or the other things that I mentioned? What is he doing? Well, the answer is we don't actually fully know with full clarity what he's doing, why he's doing what he's doing. We do know from scripture that we live in a fallen world that's under sin's curse. And so these things happen. This, this is the fruit of sin in our world. Not necessarily a retribution to the sin in terms of a cause and effect, but in terms of our world has sin in it. And so these dynamics happen. But even through a sin-cursed world that God allowed to be this way, what do we know as to why this is happening right now? Well, I can say from our text that I'm going to read shortly that We do know a few things. We know that this world is shakable and that God's going to build a better one for us that's unshakable. There's a new world that God's going to build for us. And so this world feeling vulnerable right now, which it's always been this vulnerable, is to prove to us that God is going to make us a better one. It actually calls us to desire a better world than the world we're living in right now. A shakeable one versus an unshakable one. We should want that one more than this one. And when things get really bad here, whether someone's dying of cancer and you're sitting bedside with that person and they're going home, or we're in a pandemic where we have statistics that are death statistics in front of us all of the time, it should cause us to say, This world's okay, but it really is sin cursed, and we want a better one that God is going to make for us. He's making a new world and He wants us to be there. And so, this text, if you're taking notes, is a warning text, but it's a warning with hope. It's a warning text. It's the final warning text of the letter Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, is the final warning text. This is the text that's calling runners in the faith to keep running and to run all the way up into heaven, the new world that God is going to make. Listen, as I read verses 25 through 29, see, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth May remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, well, again, if you're outlining, we're talking about a warning that has hope. We're responding to a warning with hope. So, Let's look at this with sort of three statements. First of all, verses 25 to 26, God speaks through cataclysmic events. Cataclysm. He speaks through a shakeup. The text tells us that God is currently speaking. He, the author is in verse 25 addressing the early church saying, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God is present active speaking. He's speaking through this dynamic. Are we listening? The world is breaking apart. The volume of God's voice turns up. It's louder and louder. And the author is saying, hey, see to it that you don't miss the message. Don't refuse God who's speaking to you through something that's cataclysmic something that's on a world scale, something that's ever before us. Don't miss God's voice to your heart right now. Don't refuse him. Don't run from God. Don't be hardened from God. Don't reject God. Don't spiral into depression away from God. Don't become melancholy with God. Listen to God when it's hard. Hardship is when God wants your attention. And the analogy here to the early church is the warning analogy of the first generation wilderness children. They were released from Egypt, but for four decades, they complained against God. They refused God. That's why they were wandering around. They heard from God. As verse 26 says, at that time, his voice shook the earth It's talking about when the children of Israel, as we talked about last week, went up to Mount Sinai and God was speaking through the tempest. He was speaking through the thunder. He was speaking through the fire. He was speaking and shaking the earth directly and through Moses to the people who were at the foot of the mountain. They were listening They were receiving the Ten Commandments. They were receiving the law. They were being told, hey, don't cross the threshold into God's holiness. Don't run up the mountain. Don't even let your animals up here. It will mean instant death. But God nevertheless was speaking to them. And he was speaking in such a way that the law was scaring them. The standard of the law uh, was causing them to beg not to be told any more. The voice of God is in this text. If you look at verse 19, it says the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want to hear your standard. And so that was the beginning of the first generation being ambivalent. Yeah, they received the law. Yeah, they said they would obey the law, but they began for four decades to wander in the wilderness and they had a real sort of up and down refusal of God's voice for 40 years. That's what this is talking about. It's the warning not to be like them. Don't be a fence riding Christian or someone who thinks you are a Christian, but you're so ambivalent. You're kind of a Christian in name only. You're just playing the game. And when God is now speaking to you, With a hard time in our culture, in our life, where life is on shutdown, don't refuse him. That's the warning that's given in this text. Don't walk away from the Lord. The first generation Israelites is so apropos. Their ultimate sin was not Their response at Mount Sinai when the earth was shaking. Their ultimate sin was their response for 40 years over the next four decades. And the sin could be boiled down to this it's the sense of self confidence or overconfidence in yourself. It's fine to be. Confident in the Lord, it's fine to be um, excited about the fact that you're made in the image of God, that you're able to think, that you're able to make decisions, you're able to earn wealth, you're able to lead a family, you're able to do things, perhaps you have hobbies that you enjoy ways that you enjoy life, that's fine to be confident in those things. But when your self-confidence becomes overconfidence to the point of shutting God out and saying, I don't need God, that's a sin of refusing to hear God's voice. And that's exactly what that first generation did. They're a bad example to us. They're what we are not supposed to be. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians ten one to 12, Paul clarifies their sins explicitly. It tells that their overconfidence is broken down in this way. First Corinthians 1 to 12. He says, I want you to know brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's the red sea that parted and all were baptized into Moses. That's talking about their following Moses. They were, they were deeply invested in his leadership they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. That was the manna that came down from heaven and all drank from the spiritual rock. That was the water that flowed from the rock as, as Moses struck it. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. That rock is the word Petra. It was a large um, rock face. It would be like a, a larger than a boulder Something that was large and tradition says that that rock literally followed them as they wandered through the wilderness. The rock who was Christ was always with them. And that rock was the rock that flowed water so that they could drink and live. They drank from the spiritual rock, but they were drinking physical water. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Who's most of them? Everybody that was basically 20 years old and above, God was not pleased with them. In fact, only from the first generation wilderness crowd, only two entered into the promised land. And that was Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, when the others rejected going in the promised land. Even Moses and Aaron were disqualified from going into the promised land. God was displeased with them. They were refusing to hear from God. What were their sins? What was the overflow of their sin? It says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 5, verse 6 These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire the evil that they did. What was the evil? Verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. They worshiped a golden calf. Exodus 32 says they were worshiping foreign gods. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. They were involved in that. And as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is probably talking about when they worshiped the golden calf and then the Levites were charged by Moses and by the Lord to kill 3000 people on the spot for doing that. And then 20,000 later would die of the plague Die of sickness. This was God's judgment. Verse nine, but we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. They were testing Christ. They were against Christ. They were complaining against the Lord, even though they didn't know Christ's name as Jesus, they were going against God and God sent fiery serpents to kill them. They did all of these things. Verse 10 talks about the grumbling nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is when the, the world opened up and swallowed Korah, the tribe of Korah down into the earth. They went down screaming alive into Sheol. That was done by the destroyer, which is probably the same death angel that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Look at verse 12, don't miss this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he, what? Fall. The sin is the sin of sinful self-sufficiency, overconfidence in yourself to get you through. That's the primary sin. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 nails it. First generation had tremendous freedom. They were miraculously delivered. They were miraculously cared for. They were fed with manna and water from the rock, but their overconfidence, as 1 Corinthians 12, 5 says, laid them low. You know, the earlier verses back in Hebrews 12 describe what every believer has inherited. We've inherited heaven, verse 22. We've inherited the living God. We've inherited a heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels. We are part of this assembly. We have the assurance of our salvation that we are on the registry, that we're assured to be there. But if you are an ambivalent person in the church, someone who is a Christian in name only, you don't have this assurance of your salvation. God is calling to you as he did the early church through a text like this, to not refuse God's warning. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Verse five, if, for if they, the first generation the wilderness children did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. What does that mean? You say, well, these warnings on earth that I just described were pretty severe. The the earth opening up physically, fiery serpents. I mean, these are severe warnings. The tribe of Levi slaying 3,000, 20,000 dying of a plague. Well, what about a warning where God is speaking to you through his word into your heart right now? What about a warning where you know the whole story about how everything is going to end? What about the accountability of the gospel where you know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, his death, burial, resurrection. No man can come to the father, but through him. What about the warning where Jesus Christ from the right hand of the father is calling you and wooing you and drawing you to himself? Are you going to reject that warning? You're going to reject that kind of accountability because the children of Israel rejected God's accountability here on earth, but If you reject God now, you're rejecting God who is speaking from heaven to your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And a world pandemic is a wake-up call for us to not refuse him who is speaking to you. This is the final warning. We've read of a warning similar to this in Hebrews 10, 29. It says... How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? We don't want to outrage the Holy Spirit by trampling underfoot the Son of God, by rejecting the knowledge that we are clear on that Jesus died for our sins. We don't want to reject him. Verse 30 of Hebrews 10, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 26, if you'll look there at Hebrews uh, 12, verse 26, God's voice came through The shaking of Sinai to reveal to us a future universal shaking that is still coming. You might be shaken up today. You might feel shaken up. But this is nothing in comparison to the future shaking that will come. A universal shaking. And in verse 26, the author of Hebrews is quoting Haggai the minor prophet, about a future universal shaking. The news about the Lord's day is not just New Testament news. The coming of the Lord where God will burn the world with fire, where God will recreate things, destroying what was created and recreating a new heavens and new earth. That might be more explicitly clear in the New Testament from our from Pauline teaching and also the apocalyptic teaching of John out of the book of revelation, we see things more explicitly clear, but all the way back in the book of Haggai, there was an announcement that things were going to be different. Look at verse 26 of Hebrews 12. At that time, His voice shook the earth, that's Sinai. But now he has promised, and here's the quote from Haggai 2.6, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What's going on back in Haggai? This is when under the leadership of King Zerubbabel, the king of Judah, the exiled nation of Israel had been brought back to Judah to rebuild the temple. Under Zerubbabel, this great project was to happen as a testament of God's faithfulness. You had the Cyrus, the king and sort of overlord of all of Persia allowed for these exiles to return. And you have under King Zerubbabel leadership to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. This was a grave time. This was a sobering time. It was a time where there was some dawning hope in the nation of Israel to rebuild, but they were acting melancholy about it all. They weren't motivated. And as part of the motivation to get them off go to rebuild the temple, you have Haggai, the prophet, this minor prophet who is saying, not only will God take care of Persia and take care of Greece, not only will he take care of those kingdoms as is predicted in Daniel um, chapter 7 those kingdoms are going to fall but there's a future cataclysmic event that is like none other where the universe will be shaken that's what Haggai is predicting it's what's explicitly detailed for us in Revelation 6 through 19 the sun becomes black the moon like blood the stars fall to the earth Revelation six thirteen. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Literally, the stars are going to fall. God is going to do a complete reboot of the universe. He's taking it all down with a word. He's going to split everything apart like a scroll, every island moved out of place, all nations will be subjugated to Christ. That's what Haggai is predicting. That's what Revelation is predicting. That's what Hebrews 12 is predicting. So God shook not only earth, but he, he's going to shake the heavens. Kent Hughes said the heavens, and we're not talking about The other dimension where Christ and God is. We're talking about the earthly heavens in the sky. The heavens speak of 100,000 million galaxies. Each containing at least that many stars. Each galaxy 100 light years across. And with a word God will shake all of these out of existence. Comparing This kind of shaking to what happened at Sinai or what happened with our earthquake in Anchorage or in Alaska or comparing anything that's happening now to that universal shakedown really is no comparison at all. The point is to refuse God now means that there will be no escape at a certain point If you refuse God in this life, as he's calling to you from heaven to your heart, eventually you will come under a condemnation that is inescapable. You can't escape a God like that. You can't escape. You can't in your own self-sufficiency or your own thought of self-sufficiency or your own overconfidence out muscle a God like this. You can't outrun him. You can't outsmart him. You might feel like you can. You might feel like you're outsmarting him with money or with personal power, or some kind of self-confidence, but you're really not. Ultimately, everything will melt down under God's lordship. This is a warning. Whether through the wind of the hurricane or a tsunami or a famine or a lethal pandemic, it's a warning of what's to come. And the warning is given to us from scripture, but it's not without hope. God's always in charge. He wasn't the author of the sin of this world. He wasn't the author of anything in terms of it being sin cursed. And yet he's sovereign over this sinful world. He's not culpable for the sin that's here. And yet he's sovereign over it at the same time. This is a tension that we have to acknowledge in God's sovereignty. God is holy. Sin cannot go to him or from him. And yet he's sovereign over it. He allowed for our world to be cursed. And he cursed it. Well, the first point. Builds into the second point, And that is this. God not only is speaking to us. Through cataclysmic events. But secondly, God clarifies the difference between two distinct worlds. That's what he's doing. Verse 27 is a great clarification. He's speaking and he's clarifying. We know that. We might not know all of the whys and wherefores with the pandemic. We might not know where it's going. But you need to understand that from scripture, God is clarifying the difference between this kingdom, this world, and the world to come. The author here is an an expositor. He's expositing Haggai 2.6. That's what verse 27 is. He's breaking apart the meaning of Haggai's words found in Haggai 2.6. Look at verse 27. Yet once more. This phrase, this is the author of Hebrews. This phrase, note this phrase, yet once more. It means something else is going to happen. This is the universal Shaking, And he's explaining exactly what will happen. Look at verse 27. It indicates the removal of things that are shaken. So there's a removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made. What does that mean? Well, we have creatures, we have creation, and we have creator. Creator is going to shake everything up like a bottle. He's just going to shake it all up. So that everything disintegrates that He created. You say, is that fair? Is that righteous? Well, God is God and we are not. He is creator and we are the created, and He's going to shake everything up that was created. Our world, our earth, the planets, the galaxies, all the stars, it's all going to be shaken up. Think of the world flood where he promised that he was going to destroy the earth because of its sin that was multiplying. Well, this is going to be far wider reaching than that world flood. This is God destroying everything, melting everything down. Stars falling. This is what is promised. And it's to clarify that there are two kingdoms there's a shakable kingdom and one that is unshakable so let's zero in on why this is going to take place look at verse 27 again what is shaken is the removal of things that are shaken that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain he's shaking everything down so that only What is of the next kingdom will remain. Now, here's the question. What is going to remain? What is of the next kingdom? One thing, I think. One thing that is a created thing. And that is the new life that God creates in the hearts of believers. What remains? Believers. Believers. I mean, God, obviously, he's uncreated. He's here. I don't believe the angels, anything's going to happen to them. They are in the Lord's day depicted as his servants, those who are executing for him as fiery messengers. You have all of the saints of old. They're protected because they're part of the kingdom. And then anyone here who has believed on the Lord, who has new life, who's not refused God who's speaking, who's not run the other way. Anyone who has understood the distinct difference between a kingdom that is shakable and going down and the new kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brought, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, the kingdom from the messenger who came as king, anyone who's followed him, we won't be shaken up when everything is shaken down. Think of Jesus who came. What did he do? He brought the kingdom. Why did he heal people? Because he was manifesting the kingdom. Why did he raise people from the dead? Because he was bringing the kingdom. Why did he do miraculous things where he's saying, I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. Here's water. Here's life. Why did he do those things? Why did he heal the sick, raise the dead, make the blind to see, make the deaf to hear? Why did he do these things? It's because he was bringing heaven on earth episodically in moments. Why did he cast demons out? Because he was bringing heaven on earth in that moment. Because heaven ultimately is a place where there's no more death, no more dying, no more sickness, no more virus, nothing, no more demons. That's heaven. And Jesus brought that to earth to say, follow that kingdom. This kingdom, this sin-cursed world is going to be shaken up, but that kingdom is secure. This kingdom is vulnerable. This kingdom is volatile. This kingdom is unpredictable. This kingdom is cursed. And then there is a king, kingdom that's coming that's stable, that's secure, that's predictable, that's safe in the arms of Jesus. Back in the day when Jesus came to towns, people would bring their sick. They would, the Greek word pharaoh, they would bear up people on pallets who were sick, who were paralyzed, who couldn't walk. And many were disease stricken because there was no antibiotics back then. It's very similar to how people are struggling to find a cure for the coronavirus. We need antibodies. We need antivirals. We need medicine to make people okay. That was the situation that Jesus walked into where people flooded to be healed by him because he was the only one that could possibly do it. It's the difference in kingdoms. You have a sin-cursed kingdom and then you have one that is secure and perfect and safe. This is the kingdom that we are to run to. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and I just invite you to look there quickly, it describes exactly in detail what's going to happen. When things melt away, God has promised in Second Peter three to destroy everything by fire. The Lord's prophecies are mocked, they've been mocked, Second Peter three, three, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They're mocking, they're saying, Where verse four is the promise of his coming? Where is he forever since the fathers fell asleep? The prophets have died. Where where is this coming? Look at verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. There was the universal flood. And then verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the point. He's holding things off. He's holding off this universal meltdown so that people will repent before that takes place. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief suddenly, right? Unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything is melted down and then there's an exposure. This reminds me of what we'll experience at the Bema Seat Judgment. When we stand before the Lord. Where all of our nominal works. All of our just stuff that's hay, wood and stuff will just be melted away. And we'll be saved yet as through fire. It's the picture. This is the picture of things being ultimately just clarified completely clarified verse 10 of second peter 3 and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed verse 11 since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of persons people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's unbelievable. If you look back at Hebrews 12, uh, the commentator named Homer Kent, he compared the words in um, the verses before us, verse 26, 27, and 28. The word shake and shaking and shaken are used over and over again in these verses. This word shook, shake, and shaken is picture language. And it pictures a tree where wind is just whipping it and all the leaves are falling off. Or the idea of a dog, this is kind of a humorous illustration, but a dog that's soaking wet walks in and then suddenly shakes itself and all the water flings off of it. These are pictures of things shaking and breaking. Luke 3 talks about the winnowing fork that... The Lord Jesus pictured throwing up the wheat into the air where the chaff blows away and the wheat falls to the ground, but the chaff ultimately is burned with fire. Everything else that's not of God is flung away, flung away. This is the sober warning. Psalm 1 speaks of the wicked that are not so. They are not those who prosper, Psalm 1, 4, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in judgment. Who survives the shaking? Well, believers do. One phrase from Revelation 20, I just want to mention when everyone stands before the great white throne judgment and the books are opened. Revelation 20 verse 11, it says, where you're standing, I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. Listen to this phrase. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Time stops. Time stops when you're in front of the great white throne. Everything stops. And there you are. If a believer, you come into the unshakable kingdom. Unbeliever, you're cast eternally into fiery judgment. Revelation 21, 1-4 to talks about a new heaven and a new earth that's coming down that John saw. This is the kingdom that comes. Well, just quickly, let's look at point three. We've talked about how God is speaking through cataclysmic events. We've talked about the fact that God is clarifying the difference between a shakable and unshakable kingdom. And then finally, my last point I want to just make quickly is God promises complete stability for you in heaven. This is a warning, but not a warning without hope. This begins in verse 28. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Isn't that a great note of hope? Therefore, let's be very, very grateful that we're part of the the kingdom that's solid, that's unshakable, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It's the same God of the Old Testament, same God that we saw at Sinai, same God that we see in the vision of New Testament, where God comes with a two-edged sword in judgment. This is our God whom we stand before in heaven in an unshakable kingdom. This is the same God described throughout scripture. And so it's a God that is due our reverence and awe. There's nothing worse than seeing a, a little child disrespect his or her parent. Not holding that parent in proper respect. And as little children, we enter the kingdom as little, humbled children with the faith of a child, not in self sufficiency, but in utter, utter care of our father where we are completely insecure without him that's saving faith where you say I am not finding security in myself I'm not finding security in anything I've done or who I think I am I am insecure this virus has made us feel insecure and when we melt our hearts before God in humility and say I am insecure I am as insecure as a little child crawling up onto the lap of my father saying father save me I'm holding you in awe and in reverence. I need you. You are this God. That is saving faith. And that is being secure and stable in a kingdom that is unshakable. Offering acceptable worship. Just like Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're offering as living sacrifices, acceptable spiritual worship. The question is. Are you offering God worship now? Or are you worshiping a kingdom that's shakable? Are you worshiping shakable things? Are you worshiping things that are going to just burn up? Are you worshiping lust? Are you worshiping self? Are you worshiping pride? Are you worshiping self-confidence? Hebrews warns us not to do that. Not to reject God. Overconfidence will send us to hell Being humble before God and offering our worship with gratitude is the kind of faith that enters into God's unshakable kingdom. And we're going to stand before him who is a consuming fire. Do you see that in verse 29? It says, for our God is a consuming fire. What does he consume? All sin. If you stand before God and you are, unprotected you've put all your hope and all your trust in a shakable kingdom and you're trusting yourself and you're standing there before god and you're right before him and he's a consuming fire what's going to be consumed all of your sin and all of you forever cast into hell being consumed and reconsumed and reconsumed and consumed and in flames forever and ever or if you come to god in humility rejecting self-sufficiency in utter insecurity, trusting God alone for salvation. Then you have the asbestos suit of God's righteousness in Christ covering you because Christ's righteousness is all we have. It's his death, his resurrection that clothes us in his righteousness. And though our sin is consumed, it's consumed by Christ, not us. That's the glory of the unshakable kingdom.